All right, we're going to spend some time opening up the Bible and studying it together now. My name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And we spend time every week studying the Bible because we believe that it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. Um, We've been in the middle of a series studying the Bible through Daniel called What to Do When the World Falls Apart. And by way of background today, there are a few things that I need to outline to kind of make it make sense. There's some oddities in our story. Um, First of all, we're studying a kind of the last king of Babylon, a lesser known king, and his name was Belshazzar. And uh, Katie actually mentioned this as she was reading the story. Daniel's Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, and then this last king of Babylon, his name was Belshazzar. So very similar, but just want to kind of throw that out up front to to help you keep track and not get too lost. So he was the last king of Babylon before it fell to the Persians. The Medes and Persians took over the empire. And he was in the long line of kings following Nebuchadnezzar. This was about 23 years later, roughly, from the last story. So chapter 4, about 23 years before chapter 5. So Daniel's much older. There are several other kings. And Belshazzar is now the last king. Another little oddity of our story today is that they will refer to Nebuchadnezzar as the father of Belshazzar. That was a common Near Eastern practice, and we do things kind of like that in our culture, where we'll say this person was our, our father or our predecessor that came before us, but it doesn't necessarily mean a biological father. What they mean was he was the great king of Babylon. And so when they talk about Nebuchadnezzar being the father of Belshazzar, it's just a Middle Eastern way of saying uh, he was this important predecessor because Nebuchadnezzar was basically the main known famous founder of Babylon, the most famous of their kings and emperors. One more thing, and then we'll actually get to the story here today. One more thing is that uh, as ancient Uh, scholars and historians would study this, a lot of folks over the years would say that Daniel 5 was wrong because in ancient documents there was no evidence, there were no stories about Belshazzar. Like you couldn't find Belshazzar's name anywhere, but there was plenty of evidence that a guy named Nebuchadnezzar was the last king of Babylon. So a lot of scholars, doubters of the scriptures said, well, there you go. Since we can't find Belshazzar's name in ancient documents, and we do find Nebuchadnezzar's name as the last king, we know this is false, and, and Daniel's messed up. Well, wouldn't you know it, then they finally discovered some clay tablets, and they would write their history on clay cylinders, they'd carve it in on clay tablets, and they found these historical documents then around the turn of the century that talked about Belshazzar being the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar was the last emperor over the entire empire, what he did was he moved his palace to Saudi Arabia, and who did he leave in charge of the walled city-state of Babylon but his son, Belshazzar, right? And so I just want to show that up front. This is kind of a side application, but continually doubters of the scripture will say, well, we haven't found a historical document that agrees with the scripture, so we're going to assume the scripture's wrong. But time and time again, we then later find these documents that point to the truth, the veracity of the scriptures. It is the most documented, the most accurate ancient document in the world. And so we want to always start with the position of trusting the scripture. So again, back to what I said at the beginning, we study the Bible every week because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So this week, we're going to be looking at chapter five. If you have a Bible, you can open up your Bible to Daniel chapter five. Daniel chapter five, a story about the last king of Babylon, whose name was 
Belshazzar. And we're calling the sermon this morning, Insufficient Funds. Any of you remember back in the old days when we bought things with cash and you'd come up to the counter to pay for something and you were counting out your money, a dollar, a dollar, a quarter, a dime, and the cashier's like, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not enough. That's insufficient, right? You can't, you can't buy the moon pie with that much money. I need more money. Um, and then later on, we all started using credit cards and debit cards, and sometimes you'd swipe a card or you'd try to get cash out of an ATM or maybe using the card of the cashier, and, and you'd get that message, insufficient funds. You don't have enough. That's an embarrassing situation to be in. It's a frustrating situation to be in. And what the scripture is teaching us today is that God declared that spiritually over the life of Belshazzar. He looked at his life and he said, insufficient funds. Who you are and what you have done is not enough. And so what we want to do as we read the story and as we look at King Belshazzar, we want to look at our own lives and we want to examine the ways in which we measure up or don't measure up before God. And I want to recognize up front before we read the story that this is talking basically about judgment. And judgment is something that's hard for us as modern people. As modern people, we resist judgment. And so what we want to acknowledge is that's difficult for us, that's hard for us, but we also want to say, if anyone in the universe has the right to judge us, it is a holy and perfect God that created us. And that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is the standard of righteousness and perfection, and that he gets to decide if we've measured up, if our lives are sufficient to pay for, to measure up, to live up to what he's designed us for. He's designed us for love and justice and righteousness, and all of us fall short of that. So let's read the story It's in Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read the first few verses and then we'll pause and kind of work through it piece by piece. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. It's a horrifying image. Uh, We still use this phrase today, the handwriting is on the wall. That means something settled, it's done. We know where it's going, often indicating judgment, insufficient funds. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us, because as I said, there's a lot of landmines, a lot of distractions with the story, a lot of things that are kind of distant from us culturally. I'm going to pray that God would send his spirit to help us to hear the main things he wants us to hear today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We believe that you speak to us through it. Um, But Lord, you also know that we struggle to, to doubt, we struggle to listen, we struggle to have open hearts. So we pray that your spirit would meet us here, that your spirit would help us to receive your word to receive your grace, to listen to you, to be changed and transformed by your truth. 
to stop worshiping false powers that cannot save us, God, but to turn and trust in you. We ask that this would be so in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is insufficient funds. The big idea is we can't really pay for our lives. Another way to say that would be we owe a debt to the God of the universe. We've been judged. Uh, The way it'll be said later on in the story is our lives have been weighed and found wanting on the scales of justice. God has weighed our lives on the scales and found our lives to be insufficient. And so as we move through the text, I want to give us three things that we can do. Three things that we can do is we find ourselves spiritually in a very similar position to Belshazzar. We talk a lot about Romans 3.23 that says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Glory means the, the beautiful value or the heavy substantial value of God himself. All of us fall short of that. All of us are insufficient. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so we are often like Belshazzar. So here's three things that we can do. Number one, don't trust false gods. Number one, don't trust false gods. It's a good example we see by way of a negative example in the life of Belshazzar. Don't trust false gods. Number two, stop ignoring the truth. We see in the story that Belshazzar was actually given the truth, and yet he ignored the truth. We also have been given the truth. Are we going to listen, or are we going to ignore the truth? So stop ignoring the truth. And then number three, receive the weight of the glory of God's grace. Receive God's grace. Don't don't ignore it. Don't walk away, but receive the grace that God has for us. So number one, don't trust in false gods. We'll see this point played out in verses one through nine. Uh, And just before we uh, get started on looking at the text again, another thing we see from ancient history is we understand that the the, uh, city of Babylon was this incredible fortress, right? Um, It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, and we understand that the walls were so thick they could run chariot races on top of the walls. It was this incredible, um, unseigeable city, right? And they were proud of that, and that worked for years and years and years. And so while the story is taking place, most historians would say there was actually a siege taking place. And so this party that Belshazzar is having is like a party saying, I live in the unseigeable city of Babylon and you can't take me. And so I'm going to have a party just to show you that I'm not really worried about the Persian army invading. Okay, so that's kind of what history tells us. And that lines up pretty well with what we see in the story here as well. And so in verse one, again, it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. There's a repetition of the drinking of wine that's said again and again. And when we have repetition in stories, it's important that we pay attention to the repetition. And so we're told first that he has this great feast that he's making, but then we're told kind of to emphasize it. And then he drank wine in front of them all. And so the idea of the narrative here is what scholars tell us is that this is emphasizing that he wasn't just having a party, but he was flagrantly having a party, right? He was showing off would be the way that we would say it. In the ancient text, it says he drank wine in front of the thousand. We would say he was showing off in front of his gathering of lords and ladies. Um, And as the text went through, we're told that They then asked for the goblets from the Jerusalem temple, which was a great offense, a kind of rubbing in the face of the gods. 
uh, or the God of Israel kind of saying, I'm, I'm in charge, I don't have to bow to any other gods. And then in verse 4 it says, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And that should remind us of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen before of the great kingdoms of men. And if you remember that great image, it had a gold head and then a silver chest and then a bronze midsection and then iron and it worked on down. And I have a picture here uh, that we showed several weeks ago. This is what we should think of, right? As we're reading through Daniel and we hear this kind of layers of the great materials that mankind would use. What are the materials that we use to build things? We use the materials of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood is left out of this image, but then also we have stone in the final image. And what we should be reminded of is that we as humans often try to worship things that are made by our hands. Out of the most precious materials that we can find, And then we bow down to these things, which on the face of it is idiotic, is ridiculous. And so again, the warning to us is to not trust in these false gods like Belshazzar did. The first false god that I think Belshazzar was trusting in, as I set up historically, was I think the first false god he was trusting in was the city of Babylon itself. The city of Babylon itself. It had proven itself again and again to be an unconquerable city an unseigeable city. And so what I want you to think about and I want myself to think about is what are the institutions, what are the infrastructures in our lives that we say, well, that will never fail me. That can't be defeated and that's solid and nothing can shake it. Because that's the same thing Belshazzar was, was doing, right? It was very rational of him. It was very scientific of him. It was very reasonable of him to say, Babylon never falls. It just doesn't happen. So I'm going to trust in the strength of Babylon. That's contrasted to what the scriptures teach us, right? The scriptures teach us to not trust in the institutions of men, but to trust in God. As a matter of fact, the scripture repeatedly says that God himself is our fortress. So my question for you and for me is, what is the alternate fortress that we're trusting in? What is our our shelter What is our thick wall that we say, this will protect me in life? 2020, by all accounts, has been a horrible, horrible year, right? It's been miserable for everybody. No matter where you stand on everything, right? We're all divided and we all have different opinions about it, but we all agree that it's been a terrible year. But one of the things that's been so good about this year is all of our fortresses have been destroyed. All of our sources of security have crumbled or cracked, And that forces us to revisit, who am I really trusting in? Am I trusting in God as my fortress? Or am I trusting in these other institutions? And I think we see the same thing in the story of Belshazzar. The other thing we see Belshazzar doing that we want to learn from, another false god or false power that he's trusting in is his own image, right? He's showing off. He's saying, look at me. I'm this great king. He's drinking in front of everyone, throwing this great feast, this great party to project an image of not caring. And that's a question for us. How often do we work more on our image than our actual substance? You know, like we try to project this image of success. Look at me, I'm successful rather than just trusting in God and not caring what our lives look like. How often do we do that? Like 
like Belshazzar. And then finally, the false gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron. What are, what are those created things we trust in? Man, they're endless, right? Education, money, success, medicine, uh, politics, right? There, there are all these things that we trust in that in the end are just, they're just made of wood. They're just made of iron. They're just made of gold and bronze and silver. They're, they're made by human hands. It's not something that God actually created, but it's uh, something that we've created, that we've fashioned. What if we trusted in God instead? And again, remember, as, as uh, we go through this list of gold, silver, bronze, it should make us think back to that image. And the image told us, the kingdoms of men will be made in descending order of, of brightness and gloriousness and value, and yet all of them will be crushed by the kingdom of God. Ultimately, Jesus wins. Uh, we're headed over the next several weeks into the visions of the end of the world and the end of the ages and a lot of hard stuff that different Christians disagree on. But here's what all Christians agree on when we look at the end of the world. Jesus wins. No kingdom of mankind will stand, but Jesus wins. And so we want to run to him. Verse 5, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. So um, here's the deal. Basically, it's like the lampstand is just saying a light was shining on the hands, right? (laughs) And so the hand just happened to, to write where the light was so everybody could see it. And of course, this is terrifying because they lived in the same kind of universe that we live in, and that's the kind of universe where floating hands don't write on walls, okay? <laughs> same kind of world that we live. That's just not normal, and it freaked everybody out. Verse 6, it says, Then the king's color changed. Uh, different people, depending on your skin tone, your, your skin color changes to different degrees. You ever known someone who, like, whenever they speak in public, their, their face turns red, Right? Uh, sometimes if you're really sick, you might see someone turn really pale. Well, something like that is happening here. He's getting a change of color, and then it gives us more specifics. His thoughts alarmed him, verse 6, and then it says his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Um, that's a kind of a cartoon way of expressing fear, right, when your knees knock together. I don't even think I can do that with my knees, but... Um, <laughs> But here's the thing, the Aramaic, um, the ancient uh, language here is most people think it's a little more disgusting than knees knock. It, it's literally um, the knots of his hips came untied, okay? And, and so most scholars, I shouldn't say most scholars, a lot of scholars believe this idiom of the knots of his hips came untied is really talking about his intestines, um, what it's saying is he soiled himself. Uh, he went to the bathroom on himself. I'm sorry, I'm just going to blame the text. I believe that's what the text is saying here. Um, and so I think the Christian Standard Bible has that in the translation. Other translations are like, well, we're not sure, so we'll just say he was scared, right? But he was really, really scared. It was a gross and humiliating moment. Verse 7 says, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. Does this sound familiar? This happens again and again, right? Nebuchadnezzar's always calling in all his wise men, all the powers of, of man and his empire. They're never quite enough. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not 
read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then, verse 9, reiterates it again. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The message here is don't trust in false gods. We see him coming undone. We see him being embarrassed. He's toasting to the gods of gold and silver and he's disrespecting the God of Jerusalem by flaunting the goblets that they'd stolen from the Jerusalem temple. He's disrespecting the true creator God and trusting instead in mighty Babylon. Trusting instead in showing off his own image. Trusting instead in what man can create with gold and silver and bronze and iron. The message is don't trust in false gods. The next thing we'll see is the message that we should stop ignoring the truth. He knew better. The the key verse for this section, it's a long section of narrative. The key verse is at the end. It's verse 22. And you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew all this, Belshazzar, and you didn't humble your heart. So stop ignoring the truth. Okay, starting in verse 10, we'll read through this section of the story. The queen... Uh, Some scholars say this is either his wife or the queen mother, the way the word is used in the ancient world. So either his mom or his wife, but some kind of queen. Because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banquet hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. So again, everybody knew this. This Hebrew guy was in charge of all the wise men. Nebuchadnezzar put him there. Verse 12, because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You're that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah? A lot of scholars think he's kind of belittling him with this phrase, like, oh, you're you're just an exile. You're just a slave that my father captured from Judah. Verse 14, but I've heard of you that the spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this interpretation and make known its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation. He's saying, I'm I'm desperate. Now I'm stooping to the level of bringing in a Hebrew exile. Verse 16 says, but I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Third ruler, again, is a good indication, like history tells us, that he was the second ruler. Belshazzar was uh, the king of Babylon, but he wasn't the ultimate emperor. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So Daniel's like, I'm not doing this for pay, but I will do this to help you understand the truth. Verse 18, O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. 
But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew, remember this from last week, repeated three times, until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Remember, we talked about this last week that God, the creator of the universe, is the ruler of the universe, is sweet to those of us who trust him, and it's terrifying to those who are rebels. He is the most high, and he rules and sets over whom he will. Verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your, your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew all of this, so stop ignoring the truth. Belshazzar was guilty because he knew the truth and he ignored the truth. How much does that apply to our own hearts as well? I grabbed a picture of a Bible sitting on a shelf. It's got something written in the dust. I don't know if you ever see this on 18-wheelers. People are right in the dust on the back of an 18-wheeler. This Bible's been sitting on a shelf collecting dust and it says, read me. It's calling out. In the conversion of St. Augustine, the the great African bishop from the 300s AD, in his conversion, he heard a child singing a little nursery song. It was, take up and read, take up and read, pick up and read. That's what God is saying to you and to me. Stop ignoring the truth. Pick up God's word and read it. We're so spoiled in the world we live. We have so many good translations. No matter what language you speak, there are multiple translations of this book to help you understand it, to help you listen to it, so that you wouldn't ignore the truth, but that we would receive the truth. What does it look like for us to be students of the Word, to be those who actually pay attention to what God has to say? Verse 13, you are that Daniel... One of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I said before, most scholars thought that he was engaging in the sin of partiality. That means belittling someone that comes from another culture or another race. This is really interesting because one of the scriptures that condemns this in the New Testament ties this in to the whole idea of insufficient funds. In James chapter 2, verse 1, we're told, My brothers... Show no partiality, no favoritism, as you hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in the English translation, the Lord of glory, but actually in the original Greek, James says, show no favoritism, show no partiality as you have your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. The translators add a little extra language to make it make more sense to us. The Lord of glory. It just says in the Greek, The glory. If you're messed up on your sense of value, if you're ignoring the truth and you're valuing things the way the rest of the world does, then you're going to fall into great sin. Specifically here, we see the sin of partiality, but multiple other sins, right? He's, He's committing the sins of idolatry in all these other ways. He's rebelling against God because he doesn't understand true value. He doesn't value God 
as ultimate. We're told in James chapter 2, verse 1, to see Jesus as the glory. That word glory is a fascinating word in the Bible. The New Testament has a sense of brightness and just beauty. And so the word glory has a sense of, of awe and glory from the kind of aesthetic world, right? Like beautiful, bright. In the Old Testament, it's a word that means something more like weighty. Um, both words kind of fit with gold, right? Gold is both bright and weighty. And so in the Old Testament, it would be weighty, substantial, solid. God is solid and real. In a world where everything we see is just kind of floats by and it's weak and wimpy, God is solid. He's the true fortress. He's the true weight. In a world where everything is so ugly and so disgusting, God is the true beauty. Do you see that? Or are you ignoring the truth? Are you like, yeah, 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 Jesus, get out of the way. I'm looking for something beautiful down here. James says, see Jesus as the glory, the ultimate glory. So how can, how can we make sure we're not like Belshazzar who knew all this, right? That's what Daniel says. It's really interesting to see Daniel's kind of um, kindness towards Nebuchadnezzar and contrast that with his harshness towards Belshazzar fascinating. I I would just encourage you to kind of read through the Gospels as well and see this posture that we see often with Jesus. Jesus was really kind to sinners who were open about their sin, right? He kind of respected honest sin much more than the deceptive sin of those who denied their sin. Religious leaders, false teachers, Jesus was much more harsh with. And I think we might be seeing a similar pattern here. We don't have all the information. We don't really understand all the differences. Maybe it's just because, you know, Daniel's pushing 80. Maybe he's just getting grumpy in his old age. (laughs) But he seems to be really harsh here with Belshazzar. And he's like, you knew better. You saw this all played out in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And you're ignoring the truth that you already knew. How much do we do that as well? How much do we leave the Bible on the shelf? So, you know, number one, way for us to overcome this is to read our Bibles, right? Read our Bibles, and as we read our Bibles, do it in such a way that we're obeying James 2.1, where we see Jesus as the glory of this book. Jesus is the one that shines through the pages of this book. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to our need of Jesus, and then everything in the New Testament says Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we've been waiting for. Read the scriptures for yourself, and then this thing we keep talking about, join a group, You can go to our website, it says join a group, and you can talk to our small groups, Pastor Jim Wilson. You can email him through there to try to connect with existing groups. We've got women's groups that are happening right now. We have monthly men's groups happening. We've got weekly celebrate recovery groups happening. We've still got some small groups that are meeting here at the church and in homes. Coronavirus has disrupted a lot of that. We have less groups than we had before. So one of the things we've really been pressing you to do is create your own group. So on the join a group page, we have little three by five cards you can create your own three-by-five group. And just as a play on words, we're like, here's this three-by-five card, and on it, it has five actions for three people to carry out, right? Share what's going on in your life, pray, read scripture together, encourage one another. And so go to the page, join a group. Um, if you go to our website, it just has the different pull-downs where you can go to join a group, and you can find those three-by-five groups. All this to say, we need to make sure we're not, like Belshazzar, ignoring the truth that we already know but we need to to season in it. We need to soak in it. We need to listen to it and respond 
to it. So the last thing that we see is that we should receive the weight of God's grace. We see this in verses 23 through 31. Receive the weight of God's grace. And so again, we're reminded in verse 21, the most high rules the kingdom of men, right? That's the thing that was repeated so much in chapter 4, verse 17, verse 25, verse 32 of chapter 4. It says it again and again. The most high rules. God is in charge. And if we trust Jesus and see that God is gracious to forgive our sin, the fact that God is in charge, that God is sovereign, that God rules, sweet. That is rest for our souls. If we don't trust him, we don't think he's gracious, then this is a terrifying thought. It says, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored him. Saying, the God who, who gives you breath, who keeps you alive, you have not honored him. And again, we want to be careful because I know a lot of you have a sensitive conscience. You're like, oh no, if I accidentally use the, the, the wrong cup, God's going to like strike me down in the moment. No, this was blatant rebellion, right? And back it up even more, the scriptures are clear, we're all guilty. All of us have insufficient funds in our moral account. So this is not an unfair God just kind of looking at random for us to accidentally break a rule. This is a God who says, I've called on you to love me and love people and you're not doing it. And his taking these goblets from the temple of Jerusalem and, and showing off and the way he drank out of them was just one more way for him to thumb his nose at God and say, I'm God, you're not. I will not submit to you guys. It was one more way for him to demonstrate his rebellion, even though he knew that God gave him breath. So verse 24 says, then from his presence, Daniel's saying this, from his presence, the presence of God, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This could either be translated as nouns, or verbs, the way Aramaic and Hebrew works, they're consonants without vowels. And so the context tells us when we should use them as vowels and, or as verbs and when we should use them as nouns, okay? And so when you just have random words, not in the context of a story or a sentence, it's hard to understand what they're saying. And so you might have read the Bible before and heard uh, money uh, amounts like a, a mina or a shekel. That's, that's what these words are, just slightly different language, right? So it's like mina, mina, shekel, and a half. Mina, mina, shekel, and a half. So that would be the noun translation of that. But Daniel says there's even more to it. So here's the translation that Daniel gives us. This is the writing that was transcribed, mene, mene, tekel, parson, verse 26. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. So the noun would be a mina, a coin, and the verb would be numbered. Your days are numbered. And then verse 27, tekel, tekel or shekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, right? Weighed on the scales. 
the ancient world, when you paid for something, you not only would count the coins, but then they would weigh the coins to make sure they were real and substantial and the appropriate amount, right? There was a lot of inconsistency in money in the ancient world, so they were always having to weigh and measure things. And so shekel means weight. And so the noun form is a type of money, and then the verb form is weighing something in the scales. And then verse 28, Perez or Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so that last one, Perez or Parson, would be like a division, like we would say a half or a quarter, right? And so like we'd be paying for something, we'd be like, you know, a dollar, a dollar, a quarter and a half. We're, we're counting out money. And that's what the hand is saying, like, here's some money, counting it out, a mina, a mina, a shekel, a parson. You've been weighed and found wanting. It's not enough. Belshazzar, you owe a debt that you cannot pay. Verse 25, or verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. We don't fully understand what's going on here, right? Like earlier, he's like, yeah, yeah, I don't want your money. Maybe this was like, you know, Middle Eastern bargaining and the way they did it in that world. We're not really sure. First, he's like, I don't need your money, but I'm gonna tell you the truth anyway. Tells the truth and he's like, all right, go ahead and give him the stuff even though he refused it. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. We're told that the money counted out, spiritually speaking, morally speaking, was not enough. Belshazzar owed a debt that he could not pay. One of my favorite illustrations of this idea of being weighed and found wanting is from 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4 is the story about Eli and his sons who were stealing from the sacrifices that God's people were making to God. So God's people would bring in food to sacrifice to God and they would bring it in as a way of honoring God and praising God. And Eli and his sons were wicked priests because they were stealing from it. And we're told at the end of that story that the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of God's holiness and glory, had been stolen by their enemies. And Eli's sons died. Then we're told that Eli falls over and breaks his neck. I grabbed a picture here. It's kind of a terrible picture. But anyway, old man falling over. We've got a picture of Eli falling over. We're told in the story in 1 Samuel 4 that Eli falls over because why did he break his neck when he fell over? The text says, I'm going to tell you what it says in the original Hebrew, because he was very glorious. He was very glorious. And again, I've told you earlier, the word glory in Hebrew can mean weight. He was stealing what belonged to God and taking it on himself and it crushed him. It crushed him. When we try to create our own glory, when we try to create our own value out of the things of this world, it never works. It destroys us. When we worship false gods, when we worship material things, when we worship comfort, when we worship security, when we worship money, we're acquiring this glory. We're acquiring this beauty for ourselves. We're stealing from God and it always ends up killing us. So that Belshazzar is judged, just like we are, we have all fallen short of the glory, the weight, and the beauty of God himself. Our only hope is that God would give his glory to us. 
Because when we steal it, it always kills us. It never works. And so my question for you is in what ways have you been cheating on the scales? In what ways have you been sliding a little money, a little comfort, a little ease, a little materialism, some politics, some retirement accounts, some relationships, some fun, and we're trying to add to the scales and say, here you go, God, this is a life I've lived. Here, here judge it. And we've been, we've been cheating. We've been putting things on the scales that don't belong on the scales. What have you been weighing and valuing and glorifying in your life? What have I been glorifying in my life? God tells us none of it's enough except for God himself. Jesus is the glory. We all deserve judgment. All of us have insufficient funds. That beautiful passage in James that talks about the way that all of our relationships are, are broken by impartiality or by partiality and favoritism. They're all broken because we don't see Jesus as the glory. James ends that section with really harsh words about deserving judgment. And then James says this in James 2.13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. The story of Belshazzar is a scary story because it's a story of judgment. And these are important stories for us to read and to study. We said before, one of the marks of our church is we do expository preaching, which means we work through books of the Bible, and that means I have to preach on chapters I don't want to preach on, right? That means we just kind of go in order, and I'm like, all right, well, I guess I have to preach this. It's all about judgment. This is kind of depressing, right? We're all judged when we hold up our life and say, look at what I've done, right? But when we see Jesus as the glory, mercy triumphs over judgment. All of us have insufficient funds. But Jesus, Colossians 2 says this explicitly, Jesus, through the cross, paid our debt. He didn't just clear your debt and bring your bank account spiritually back to zero, but he gave you his inheritance. So that if you have faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees the resurrection perfection of Jesus himself. He delights in you. He loves you. He's adopted you. He's made you his child. Trust in him. We have insufficient funds, but Jesus gives us his glory. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you saved us by dying for us. You canceled our debt by giving us your life, your resurrection power. You conquered sin and death. You have forgiven us. So God, help us to learn hard lessons from those that are judged, from those that refuse to turn from their sin, from those that trusted in themselves instead of trusting in you. Help us to see the terror of this. And instead, Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to see Jesus as as the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.